Hello, and welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable, the only podcast that dares to be both on topic and on location, whether physical or virtual. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I'm a part of the Gestalt IT family. I focus on a variety of technologies, and I've invited a group of IT luminaries to join us today to debate a topic, actually a premise related to security. And I hope that we're going to come up with a really interesting discussion here. But I'd like to take a few moments for the guests today to introduce themselves so that you know who they are before we get into today, to today's premise. So, Peter Jan. Hey, all. My name is Peter Jan Nefkens. You can find me on Twitter with @pjnf or on my blog site, nefkens.net. Jens. Hi, I'm Jens Söldner. You can find me on Twitter at Jens Söldner, J-E-N-S. S-O-E-L-D-N-E-R, and I do blog at www.cloudadvisors.net. All right, and Christopher. Hi, my name is Christopher Cusack, and I'm CXI on Twitter, and I blog at thepragmatictech.com. All right, thank you all for joining us today. Let's jump into this episode's premise. Bugs are a way of life when you are dealing with software. You didn't intend to code that variable the way that you did, and suddenly it's vulnerable to something like a buffer overflow attack. In the old days, we had to find out about these things the hard way. Hopefully we caught them before they went to production, but the odds are good that a hacker probably found it first and now we're making the news. Companies in recent years have decided to turn the tables though. They have started offering bug bounty programs which pay offensive people to find a bug and disclose it to the company for a set amount of money rather than releasing it online for other money that mainly of dubious nature. And they seem to work really well, but they have created a very interesting community that is determined to make their living finding bugs in your stuff. However, I believe that it's not exactly the way we should be doing things. So the premise of this episode is that bug bounty programs are just legalized bribery. Now, I'm sure that all of you are racing for the comments right now to tell me that I am wrong and that you are crazy, but let's develop this idea. And so Jens, you have done a lot of work in the security research field, and I'm gonna start with you. Bug bounty programs have changed the way that we look at finding bugs in software. How does that look from your perspective? Well, Tom, I would agree that bug bounty programs are definitely a good idea as long as they are run by the organization that is responsible for these bugs themselves, like Google, Microsoft, VMware, and stuff. Taking up your premise here, I do agree that it becomes that the situation becomes a little bit more difficult if some random third party starts to decides to start a bug bounty program related to other vendors. And this third party is not like a state actor that like might have a good goal in mind and help these, um, hopefully help these software companies by disclosing this is these issues. So I really, I really do see the point that, yeah, this could be called bribery. I would say I do agree with the premise. Yeah, that's one of the one of the, the very sticky wickets that we come into is it's great if Google's paying me to find bugs in Google software, but what if Google starts paying me to find bugs in Amazon software? That becomes a bounty program of a completely different kind. And yeah, would I take that money? Well, I might not, but I'm sure there's somebody that will. So, you know, it becomes a very catchy thing to, to worry about. 
Um, Peter, you know, what are your thoughts? Is is bug bounty just the way that we do things now, or is this kind of changing the way that that we do research into security bugs? You know, I think it's, it, it has always been a good idea to have these bounty programs because you take the external community, uh, look at open source communities to actually validate your code. And if there are issues with them, you can share them and that you get paid for your efforts that might sound like a good idea. And I think it actually is as soon as you, uh, as long as you keep it ethical. And what has happened is that these bounty programs or push for bounty programs even, they have created companies that make a living out of finding these bugs. And then you're going to create a market for it. And as soon as something is becoming a market instead of ethical, um, you get this situation where you can consider to, uh, it to be bribery. So taking your example from Google, uh, if Google pays me to find a bug in Amazon, depending on what Google wants to do with it, if Google is very transparent on it and says, hey, we're going to share that with Amazon because we love a uh, good competition in, in a good competitive market, sure, then it's fine. But as soon as Google is taking that for their own advantage and taking out a competitor, it's a different thing. And then you might actually get into that bribery uh, or, or other verbs for that. Yeah, and that's one of the things that you really have to be cautious about is part of the reason bug bounty programs were created in the first place was to kind of undercut the illegal um, zero day exploit market where, you know, a good zero day for something like, I don't know, like an Apple iPhone could go for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And so by Apple creating a bug bounty program that said, hey, you can sell those back to us for $10,000, but we won't sue you if you find it. It has, you know, created a different market, but then let's just say that, no, we'll, we'll, Samsung says, well, we'll pay you $12,000 for Apple's bugs. Now you've created a market. And now people are like, well, I, if I can get 12 from Samsung, could I get 15 from LG? And so now you're, you're creating a problem where it's an escalating arms race. But so Christopher, I, oh, go ahead, Peter. Is, is that the case? Because then you're not being waived again from hacking a protected system because you're not having that agreement from the vendor that you're actually hacking into that system because it's a third party that's giving you money to hack, but you're still invading copyrights of a different vendor and you don't have that waiver. You're right, but there are also people who don't have that waiver when they first start. And we'll actually get into that in the next topic, but I wanna get Christopher's thoughts on this. Well, I've, I've done many thoughts on, on this. So one way I like to look at it is, is this created, has the bug bounty type of program created a marketplace? No. Did that marketplace already exist in the first place? Yes. Did it make it where there's some protection mechanisms like uh, Peter and Jans have, have referenced? Absolutely. It makes it a lot more accessible and open for people to actually be able to go and discover these things. So while we originally had an ecosystem of criminals who are going and discovering and finding problems and going and exploiting those problems. It expanded it into people who are not criminals who want to be able to leverage their knowledge, skills, and expertise. And then, and and uh, Peter uh, referenced the open source community on this. And I like to that that actually touches really close to the heart of one of the biggest challenges I see on this is Apple saying, "Hey, we're going to pay you to find a problem we have." Okay, cool. And then someone finds that problem, they fix it. But then the open source community is like, "Hey." goodwill, please find our problems. And then the bash vulnerability that lived in the source code for 20 years that everyone had access to was finally discovered. Uh, maybe if they offer like, you know, a, a cookie, 
maybe we would have discovered the, uh, the bash vulnerability and numerous other vulnerabilities that have literally lived in an open source code base for decades. So I think the bug bounty programs themselves are taking a lot of people who might be doing their acts for criminal type activities and actually bring them into the light and you know bring them towards a a lighter colored hat so they can actually make a professional living out of this and 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 provide a good service back to the community as opposed to you know working under their their evil dark lords who are paying them pennies basically you're trying to say that criminals don't pay well not uh, if you're uh, it, it, you're you get paid a lot better if you're freelance but uh, the larger part where you become under a government state type actor, you're, yeah, you're, you're getting paid for gruel basically. And it's not nearly as rewarding as, uh, as, as the freelance people. Although they have some protections until they you know, throw you under the cover. But that, that covers a whole separate government actor type of uh, attack program we're, we're probably not gonna dig into on this call. Well, I actually wanna dance around that topic real quick because it's actually something that is kind of fascinating when you think about it is um, there are multiple different ways to approach this from a perspective of someone who's looking to cash in on the program. Um, you can contact the company ahead of time and tell them that you're working on it and they will give you certain access and certain indemnifications. If you poke around and you break something you're not supposed to, we won't hold you legally liable. However, there are people who are basically, think of them in almost like an old west posse kind of thing. Uh, we're just going to go grab a whole bunch of wanted posters off of the, the post office wall, and we're going to go looking for people. And we're going to drag them back into town, and we're going to tell you, you need to pay up because we found the guy. But sometimes companies don't really appreciate um, help in that way where people are digging around in systems unbeknownst to the company and finding things. Um, so that can create some antagonistic relationships with companies where a, uh, a, a person with good intentions could bring a bug to the uh, attention of a company. Let's just say it's Microsoft. And Microsoft could say, well, you didn't follow the process to find the bug. We don't want you to disclose it. And we're not going to pay you because you didn't follow the rules. And now the person is kind of tied up. I can't tell anybody else about it. I'm not getting paid. Why shouldn't I release it to the community anonymously and get my money? Well, I actually want to touch on uh, how some type of uh, like unilateral or, or cross topic type things can happen. I was uh, I, I, back when we could be in person uh, last year, a team out of Taiwan had found a, a vulnerability in Fortinet's VPN. And at the same, hey, we found this, this vulnerability. And then they found that a similar type vulnerability existed in like half a dozen other VPN vendors. I think they presented on like two or three, but the majority of them were vulnerable to the where you know they they disclosed all this stuff then they public cve started being published one after the other over over many many months but they initially disclosed it to the companies and and and, and to that point we have a, a, a an agreement with one particular company of how we address this but then we find that this problem is present across multiple vendors then you have to reach out to each of those vendors and like we'd like to disclose this but we'd also like to get paid because we're professionals doing our work and that that I, I don't generally support people doing things, you know, with acts of, of malice. And if like you don't give me money, I'm going to we're going to rake you over the coals. But these also are professionals who are trying to make a living doing what they're doing. And if you want them to, you know, just go and be admin jockeys or something along those lines and, you know, not not pay for you know their, their efforts. 
I, it's a it's a, a wicked line to cross. And I've seen when organizations try to be that, well, I'm not going to pay for anything. Um, they're, they're not very rewarding organizations to be working with in general and usually tend to be more vulnerable anyway. Jens, what do you think about that? Is it is it a situation where there's very real possibility that companies refusing to pay up on their bounty programs for technicalities can create the kind of thing they're trying to stop? Yeah, definitely. I've been thinking about the problem for a couple of minutes now, and it's really like not so much a technical issue, but rather a philosophical or law issue in this relatively new field. So I, yeah, I wonder how this field could evolve so that there are certain rules of play and so on. So yeah, good question. How to approach it. Yeah, I, I actually want to reference something kind of from a physical security perspective. I, I read an autobiography of a Navy SEAL many, many years ago who did physical penetration testing for military bases. And in order to prevent the kinds of problems that we're talking about here, they had extremely clear rules about what was, was and wasn't allowed. And the targets were aware that they were going to be penetrated in a certain time frame. They were aware that they were going to be attacked even in certain locations. And beyond that, the SEAL team that was attempting the penetration test was essentially given free reign to do whatever they wanted. And so they could use social engineering, they could use a variety of technology aspects to get past it. And yet it still ended up in hurt feelings when the report came back that yes, you were vulnerable. And the, the team was like, we did X, Y, and Z. Well, we didn't expect you to do X. You didn't tell us we couldn't. And so it's, it's not unlike what we get with physical penetration testing now, except how do you lay out those those rules when you're effectively asserting to people, well, our, our code may have some bugs, but but we're we're pretty sure it's it's solid. And then someone like um, say that the the group that was doing the work for Apple in the third and fourth quarter of 2020, uh, you know, they found some pretty hair-raising bugs and and sat on them, of course, because they were working hand in fist with Apple. But you know, the rules said, you know, do we avoid the login? Do we not avoid the login? Are you only allowed to test this very certain aspect of the feature because we think that the rest of it's pretty secure? What happens if I find a bug that I wasn't looking for? Um, you know, if the rules of engagement said I wasn't supposed to look there, but I found it, do I still get paid? It's a very sticky wicket. And, and how do we get around that, Peter? I think that the parallel with the SEALs is the same as what I wanted to talk with uh, red team, blue teaming with offensive cybersecurity. You need to have those rules of engagement and you should follow them. And if you find caveats uh, or bugs or, or weaknesses in the security that you can leverage, but you're not allowed with the rules of engagement, um, I would suggest to put that in a report like, hey, um, look, it's not part of our rules of engagement, but we came across this. And whatever you find suitable to pay for me for that, I'm okay with that because I didn't follow that rule strictly. I just found it by accident. And it's my ethical uh, uh, code of conduct as an ethical hacker. I'm not certified ethical hacker, but I should be uh, in this way or thinking in this way um, to say, I found this by accident uh, because I was testing this or this conform the rules of engagement. And I'm going to give you this vulnerability for you. And I just hope you're going to fix it. Yeah. But I'm taking a moral standpoint here. I, I understand that. 
Well, altruism is alive and well, provided it pays well enough. So that's one of the problems that we're running into. That, that's the key thing. And, and, and as soon as you're not doing this, this on an ethical thing and just going for the money, you, you create these organizations that pay a lot of money to get vulnerabilities, and they're not going to share that with the original manufacturer, but they're going to sell it to governments or uh, in, in, in a very uh, unopen, secretive way. So that those state actors can actually bypass rules too, and and that's something that triggers me to be more uh, on the integrity on this. Well, let's contrast that to the governments who are actively recruiting, looking for that type of work, and then looking to purchase those vulnerabilities. When we think of uh, what was it, Windows Seven, and when two thousand eight R two went end of support earlier this year, and on the day that they went end of support. Uh, the NSA released, hey, we've been sitting on this vulnerability forever, and here you go. So yeah, now it's fixed. <laughs> I know, and that's actually where I personally find uh, it bad that these government agencies, and there are more than only the NSA, of course, uh, there are many of them, that they actually keep on the vulnerabilities just to make sure that they can get access to other countries, uh, which basically means they're going to put the gener uh, generic public at risk too because they're not disclosing the vulnerabilities to defenders. And I think that's actually a bad practice. Actually, I wanna dive into that for a second. <laughs> what happens when a company has a bug bounty program and a hacker or a person who is an enterprising person finds the bug, company discloses the bug, and a government who has been using the bug as an intelligence gathering tool squashes it and says, you can't fix this. I mean, it's a deeper discussion, but <laughs> is the company then liable to still pay the person because they did find the bug? Closing the bug and fixing the problem is not part of the bounty program. All you paid me to do was get a hold of it. Yep. That's a very tough decision to make. Well, it's like, like you had referenced earlier. It's the wanted poster approach. My job is to find the criminal, find the actor, whatever it is. Whatever you do with it, that's on you. But, but the, the, their job as the, as the hunters is to find these people. And it is what it is. Uh, true. But if you take that parallel and, and suppose um, you find that vulnerability that's being misused, it, it's, if you take a parallel with the wanted and you, you find a serial killer, uh, a psycho, and you give them to the authorities or to the company, and then you expect the company to take action and not to let that person lose. And it's the same principle with the vulnerability. So you found this big vulnerability, which can be exploited, and it's not going to be fixed for whatever mysterious reason. Are you going to accept that or not? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of, you, you disclose it to them, and then, because I've, we've seen that happen in the past, where uh, a vulnerability was disclosed, and then the company sat on it, and the, you know, the, the original discloser said, all right, well, we've been waiting for the CVE to be published. No CVE is published. Where, what, what was it? Um, the Intel vulnerabilities actually went on that. And they said, you know what, we're going to publish this information because they're still sitting on this. And then it you know, went wide stream across the entire uh, space. Um, well, some, remind me which ones those were. Spectre and Meltdown. Yeah, yep, there, those, there are too many Intel bugs at the moment. But, but actually, let's, let's take a moment to talk about that. So what happens when you get into a situation where you report a bug and the company sits on it? And maybe the agreement is they'll pay out when they disclose it. Um, is it your right to say, I need more money 
to sit on this. Is it your right to basically, well, I don't want to use the word extortion because that's illegal, but can you negotiate? And what happens when a company says, well, that wasn't a big enough bug for us to pay out because that's happened in the past too. Yeah, you know, uh, finding a, a code execution vulnerability in a CPU register that allows for multi-tenancy, uh, that's, that's not important. We're not going to pay you the 10 grand that we promised. By the way, don't ever tell anybody that you found this. Well, they can always, you can always negotiate. Uh, but unless they have you on a strict NDA, usually because they've paid you money, that they're saying you cannot go and disclose this, you cannot go and share this, then, then it becomes uh, whoever is going to be in breach of contract on their particular side. If they don't have any clear terms, I mean, basically, it's a contract, right? You're working off the rules of the contract. And, uh, and it, it, the, the, the rules start to get a little wavy when you're dealing with international partners and international players on this. But when we're looking at like strictly from a you know, U.S. person finding U.S. problem, and uh, contacting the company, you got to follow your contract law. But then once uh, the, the borders open, hey, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it becomes the wild west, which the, the entire, a, a, a large portion of the bug bunny space kind of is the wild west. And the, the wanted poster and people actually going and hunting, that is more applicable than it is to, for a, a treat, trying to treat it as a formal program that has formal rules because it, uh, we're, we're not there. We're definitely not there. So what, what I'm interpreting from what you're saying with the Wild West is that the bug bounty program should actually become more mature and more of a commercial market. And with that, clearer rules of engagement, clearer rules on when to disclose or not to disclose, uh, and allowing to disclose if uh, the company is not fixing it, because that's part of that maturity too. So let's take that thought to the logical extreme then. So why should it be the company that's responsible for paying the... Uh, um, bug bounty hunters to um, to do this? Why can't we have some sort of a, I don't know, bug bounty hunters guild where you register with the guild, you take the bug bounty, the guild gets the money from the company and pays you, and you don't have to worry about negotiating with the company as to whether or not they're going to pay out. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it works in every D&D &D game and Star Wars series that I've ever seen. It should work here. So there's a simple approach to this is if we, we take it out of the hands of the individual companies and we try to open it up to be more of a, an open standard, it becomes an insurance problem. Because a lot of these people see this as an insurance problem, at which point we hand this over to EUIC or and any, any of these large insurance carrier organizations and the companies will pay for their, their bug bounty insurance. And then when there's a problem and then there's a discovery and disclosure, then there's a payout. And then that actually expands the entire space exponentially uh, to where lots of insurance companies are making money and the, and the bug bunny hunters are making a little bit and the criminals are just doing what they're doing anyway. And they're like, oh, well, yeah, I'll offer you a little bit more because, oh, we'll buy insurance on that also. And I, I feel like it actually makes the problem far, far worse in a very scary, but very profitable way for the people who are trying to monopolize upon it. Yeah, I think that that the having a third party kind of take that on does have a lot of insurance problems, but it also has a lot of um, culpability uh, problems as well. And you know, it gets away from Google calling a bounty on Amazon, but we may not know who put out the bounty whenever we start signing up for it, and we may find ourselves doing something we probably shouldn't have, and and that comes back to a liability problem. Is the guild going to protect you from liability? And 
you know, we hope they do, but there's every possibility in the current situation that a company may think that they found a bug so bad that they never want you to talk about it. And if you do breach of contract or not, they could very well sue you. And then you're kind of out of luck. Well, I don't want to keep talking, keep talking, but I do want to at least touch on that opens the door to uh, liability of remediation at that point. Because if you're, if you're ensuring the people who are finding the bugs and ensuring the process around the bugs, then those people who aren't actually remediating, resolving the bugs and, and the problems that live within the system once something's resolved or, or a patch is released, then yeah, it, it, it just expands. Again, it'll be a very rich insurance marketplace, but it'll be, uh, it, I don't think it's going to make all of us better uh, by throwing more bureaucracy and rules against it. You know, regulation solves all problems, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it creates other problems too with regulations because uh, it's always difficult to put them crystal clear in, in, in a single interpreted way. Uh, I mean, just look at how standards are being interpreted or RFCs. Um, that guild thing, uh, isn't that already happening with a couple of open source projects or community projects to find bounties and the, the, uh, the, the loot is basically shared? Um, but I think it's the uh, responsibility of the organization providing code of a specific quality. And I think that they should actually pay out for those bugs because otherwise they will be liable for a lo much larger number of companies that can hold that original vendor liable for not providing proper code. And we have a, a legislation here in Europe and, and that's that we need to do anything possible to prevent data loss. And recently even an IT support company was made co-liable because it didn't consult the proper ways in security. And with that paradigm, you could actually take it a step further that if there's a vulnerability and that vulnerability was known for a number of years and the software company, Microsoft, for example, hasn't solved that, then Microsoft has been, is co-liable for that data loss. It has enabled the data loss and therefore 10% of the gross revenue in fines. And that's quite a bit. Chiming in with Peter here, I really have the strong feeling this is less of a technical problem for IT security experts. It's, in my opinion, something that needs to be delegated to lawmakers and law specialists that change the rules of engagement here from a top-down perspective. If you just leave the, the rest to the market, I'm not sure from my German perspective if that's really helping. I would, I would really delegate it to law specialists and people who have a strong background in this in these fields. That's my feeling at least. Yes, or industry-wide uh, guidelines that everybody follows, like the Wi-Fi 6 Alliance with most of the Wi-Fi uh, vendors in there. But that's a technical thing again. Yes. Like standardization is a good thing, I agree. <laughs> uh, but in such a case, <laughs> the problems that Tom has shed light upon. I'm not sure if pure technical standardization can solve the problem, as long as some people are just not playing along. I think maybe uh, we, we should, if we get governments involved, we get regulation involved, we, we, get, we get it from you know, lawmakers involved, then we can, we can officially put on the record, bringing back the original Microsoft Monopoly case, because Microsoft owns GitHub, Microsoft has a monopoly on exploits, 
and bugs and codes. So therefore we should hold Microsoft fully accountable for all of the problems that live in the world because they're all gonna be living inside of GitHub, right? I think maybe that's a good place to wrap it here is um, we look at bug bounty programs as a purely technical solution to a problem that's created by technology. When in fact, the legality around everything is much more nuanced and is not going to be solved with code or you know, agreements in place that are not enforceable by some kind of legal act and action, because, you know, by its very nature, disclosing the bug without the permission of the company is an illegal act. Trying to seek money to get paid for it on the black market is an illegal act. It's extortion. And so it's going to come back into the court sooner or later anyway. And I guess ultimately the problem that we need to consider is, should we be paying people at all? And if we do, what kind of agreements do we need to have in place to make sure that the process is as transparent as possible so that we don't end up with the wild west of posses collecting wanted posters and maybe bringing in the wrong person. But that's uh, an entirely different discussion that we'll probably have to wait for another day. I wanna thank our guests for joining us today and um, being a part of the on-premise IT roundtable. If you want to check out the latest episode of this podcast, please head over to our website at gestaltit.com podcast. If you want to check us out in your favorite podcast application of choice, you can do that as well. Um, also find us on iTunes. And if you are subscribed to us on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. People will re read those reviews and use it to decide whether or not they want to entertain the premise of our episodes. If you have a premise that you'd like us to discuss here on the podcast, please check us out on Twitter. We're at Gestalt IT. Send us a tweet with your idea and you may see it featured in a future episode. But for now, for Tom Hollingsworth and our great guests and the rest of the Gestalt IT community, thank you for listening in and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode.